If you uh, have a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. And uh, if I could also invite you to stand for the public reading of God's Word. Let's stand together. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some people, or some men, came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, and he took, I tell you, get, take your mat and go home. And so he got up, he took his mat And he walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. When Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If they do, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And people do not put new wine into old wineskins, because if they do, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then they said to them, The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? 
But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Please take your seats. Uh, Two weeks ago, we we started a new series together in Mark's Gospel uh, called Every Contact Leaves a Trace. And what we're aiming to do, and I did say this a couple of weeks ago that this may be madness, but what we're aiming to do is look at 70 plus incidents in the life of Jesus in seven weeks. And so Mark's Gospel is the shortest of the Gospels. And yet Mark has a very unique way of telling the Jesus story because he moves from one incident to the next at a breathtaking speed. He crams a lot in as he recalls and he records the words of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the reactions of Jesus and the reactions to Jesus. And so what we're attempting to do in this series is to journey with Jesus through Mark's gospel at quite a pace. So we're going to visit each scene. We're going to listen in on each conversation and each teaching session. But we're not going to hang about for very long. And that means we're going to miss lots. It means we're not going to cover everything. But throughout this experience, our intention is clear. That via 70 plus contacts, we hope to be left with more than a trace of Jesus, not only on us, but in us and with us. And in addition, I also hope that as we leave here each week, and as we go from this place, and we go and we spend time with other people, whether that's at home, at work, at college, at school, at uni, that each person we meet would walk away from us having been left with a trace of Jesus. That people, as they encounter us, would encounter something of Jesus in us and through us. So two weeks ago, we touched on the first nine incidents in Mark chapter 1, and we discovered this profile of Jesus. And this morning, we're in chapter 2, and the journey continues. If you do have a Bible with you, it would be really helpful if you could sort of follow this, because as I say, we are going to move at at quite a pace, and it would just be helpful to be able to see where we're going. Our tenth incident is a familiar one. Jesus is back home in Capernaum, and a paralytic man is lowered through the roof in a house. Now, what I hadn't realized until this week is that some people actually believe that this was possibly Jesus' own house. And if you think about it, if it was Jesus' own house, or somewhere where he actually spent quite a bit of time in this town, then his willingness to forgive is even more pertinent and significant. It's an interesting prospect when you think about it. But let me rewind for a moment. Jesus' popularity, for lots of different reasons, has been established Because from this moment on, it seems that wherever Jesus went, he was relentlessly pursued. Here at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, we find him in a house, somebody's house, which is packed to the doors with people. 
In fact, there are so many people in this house that the crowd is spilling out onto the street. And everyone is there with a whole range of agendas. Some, it's out of pure curiosity. For others, they are there because they're wanting to find truth. They're wanting to discover answers. And then for a certain group, as we'll soon discover, it's all about trying to pick holes in Jesus. In what he says and in what he does. And what I find interesting is how 2,000 years later, and people are still responding to Jesus in exactly the same ways. There's intrigue, there's hope, and there's suspicion. How do you approach Jesus this morning? As you come to Jesus, what frame of mind do you come in? Are you interested in him? Is he your source of hope, as we'll be singing later? Or are you actually really suspicious of him? The sense of anticipation in that house must have been tangible. Places packed. So what does Jesus do? Well, verse 2 says he preached the word. Literally, he spoke the gospel. He spoke the good news to them. And that was often Jesus' default position. That whenever a crowd showed up, Jesus would grasp the opportunity to speak words of life into their lives. You see, the importance of the preached word was apparent in the life of Jesus. And as I reflected on that, here's a conclusion I came to. That whatever else we do at Windsor Baptist Church, as far as I am concerned, whenever a crowd shows up in this place, in this house, that preaching God's word needs to be a major focus on most occasions. And then it happens. Dust and dirt start to fall on people's heads. Until eventually a huge hole opens up in the roof and four guys lower a paralysed man on a mat. And what we discover in this incident is a potent concoction of love and faith. Four guys who loved someone enough to go to extreme lengths to bring them to Jesus. But mixed with their love for their friend was a faith to believe that Jesus was actually the answer to their friend's need. And even in this ground-breaking or rather ceiling-breaking moment, I find myself faced with a real challenge because do I honestly believe that Jesus is the answer to my friend's needs. I mean, I say it. But do I honestly believe it? Those we work with, those we live with, those we spend time with, those guys who I play football with on a Saturday, who quite honestly most of the time I think, you know, their life just seems really sordid and great. They seem to be really enjoying life. Do I honestly think they need Jesus? And if I do, what lengths am I prepared to go in order to introduce them to Jesus? What risks am I prepared to take so that my friends would encounter Jesus? These four guys took risks. They went to a lot of trouble, invested a huge amount of energy and creativity 
into bringing their friend to the feet of Jesus. And so the question I'm left with is this. What am I doing? Week to week, what am I doing to bring my friends to Jesus? Or do I face a crisis of love? Or is it a crisis of faith? Well, according to verse 5, Jesus sees their faith. And he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the moment he says that, well, it sets the cat amongst the pigeons, so to speak. Because alarm bells start ringing in certain quarters. And even before we go there, we've got to address a particular issue. Because why does Jesus speak words of forgiveness? Why does he speak words of forgiveness before he speaks words like, Get up, take your mat, and go home? Why did Jesus start there? And people have speculated and have done for years. But maybe the deeper question, the more insightful question is this. Which is the greatest need during life? Is it physical healing or is it spiritual healing? From an eternal perspective, which is more critical, the forgiveness of sins or the ability to walk this side of the grave? Seems that Jesus was making a point. But in making this point, he really upset some people. The teachers of the law specifically. Something that Jesus had a particular knack of doing. And so they voice off at him. In fact, they voice off quite strongly. And they accuse Jesus of blaspheming. And Mark then informs us in verse 8 that Jesus knew exactly what these guys were thinking. And I find that an interesting thought. And I find that actually quite an uncomfortable one. Because we can say what we like to whoever we like. But ultimately God sees what's really going on in here. I can fool everyone. I have the ability. I have the power to fool you. By standing in this place. And you allowing me to speak for 20-25 minutes. But God sees the deep recesses of my being. God searches my heart. God knows what I'm thinking. And it's why our recent series on the state of the heart was so important for me, because it's that area of our lives that God wants to put his finger on and to expose and to reveal and ultimately to transform So God the Son could see, he could sense exactly what was going on in their hearts. And it wasn't pretty. And Jesus wasn't impressed. But he still engages with their issues. And just to prove that he has authority to forgive sins, he invites the paralytic to get up, take his mat and walk home. Which he does to everyone's utter amazement. And during this incident, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in verse 10. A title that he will use of himself some 14 times in Mark's Gospel. It's a title that echoes back to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And it's a title that we will return to on our journey through Mark's Gospel with Jesus. But the end result of this incident is not just a wrecked house and a restored life. But what's really interesting and critically important is that God is glorified. Because everyone, take a look at verse 12. Everyone, and we assume this includes the skeptics. Everyone ends up praising God. 
you know, God's glory is what it's all about. No matter what we do here again, we're back to it. We have got to ensure that it's all for the glory of God. It's not about any one of us. What we do has got to point people towards God. It's got to lead people to be left in amazement at our God. In the next incident, Jesus is out for a walk by the sea. And yet again, his magnetic qualities ensure that it's not long before another large crowd is drawn to him. And as we've already said, his default position whenever a crowd gathers is to teach. And so verse 13 says that he taught the people because as far as Jesus was concerned, this crowd had needs. And his first priority was often to speak and to share the word of God because as far as Jesus was concerned, it was the word of God that addressed humanity's greatest needs. Do you know one of the things I I realize and I know a number of you have shared with me is that there does seem to be a current crisis of confidence in the preached and taught word of God. But Jesus modeled a practice that we here in this church at this time are resolved to continue. And Jesus keeps walking and he comes across a tax collector, not a popular person, but like a traffic warden in our context. But most people hated tax collectors. And so the crowd with Jesus would have had no time for Levi. As he sat in his place of work, sat in his little tax collecting booth. And therefore you can only imagine the crowd's shock as Jesus stops and says something totally unexpected to him. And it's just two words he says. Follow me. And Levi was probably just as shocked because in most days he was treated like a piece of dirt. But here, at this moment, on this occasion... He encounters someone who treats him like a human being. And so Levi leaves his little booth and goes and follows Jesus. Luke would tell us in his account that actually he left everything to follow Jesus. And the first thing Levi does as a new believer is he organizes a dinner party. And the guest list is great guest list because it includes Jesus, a bunch of tax collectors, sinners. It's really interesting, isn't it, that it's tax collectors and sinners. Are they two different groups? Not sure. Jesus, tax collectors, sinners, and some other disciples of Jesus are all invited to this party. Must have been quite a group, quite a night. But as always, the religious establishment have issues. And the key one was this, how can Jesus socialise and spend time with such a suspect group of people? And this was going to be a constant problem Jesus would face, a constant accusation levelled against him. Because we know from both Matthew and Luke that Jesus spent so much time with these sorts of people that Jesus was labelled and branded a glutton and a drunkard. And I think we struggle With that description of Jesus. A glutton and a drunkard. Because we know he wasn't. But this was a case of guilt by association. Something we still struggle with. And on this occasion at Levi's house. Jesus somehow overhears the Pharisees. Now they don't appear to have been in the guest list. So it looks like they gatecrashed the party. 
And he challenges them, Jesus challenges them head on in verse 17 because he says those infamous words, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus was different from, but never isolated from those who needed to hear what he had to say. And as Christians, I know we are called to be different. And I've got to be really careful in what I say here. As Christians, we are called to be different, but unfortunately, for various reasons, many Christians remain isolated from those who desperately need Jesus. We distance ourselves from the sick. We choose to socialize with Christians only in safe places where our reputations are never questioned and where guilt by association is never risked. How often do we miss the point that it's amidst darkness that light finds its purpose? That it's in the context of decay that salt truly becomes a preservative? I know we're not to be off this world, but surely we are to be in it. In it to bring influence, in it to offer hope, in it to share Jesus, in it to be misunderstood. Jesus spent time with spiritually sick and dying people. We are surrounded by them. Sadly, I'm often far too isolated from them. In the next incident, Jesus is under the spotlight again. He's being questioned, which is a key characteristic of Mark chapter 2. Look at verses 7, verses 16, verses 18, and verses 24. Question after question after question after question. But behind each question was a desire not to discover answers or to find truth or hope, but to trap and to gather evidence against and to provide reasons for rejecting who Jesus was and for being able to write him off as for who he claimed to be. But what I find really interesting is that Jesus rarely, if ever, dismissed questions. Irrespective of where those questions came from, irrespective of the motives behind them, he generally took questions on. He engaged with people's questions about his identity, his authority, his thinking, his teaching, his lifestyle. In fact, you almost get the impression from as you journey with Jesus that he loved questions. Because they provided a launch pad for more teaching, an opportunity for another story, a chance to take issues to a deeper level. 2,000 years later, and questions are still being asked of Jesus. People are still intrigued by Jesus, or else they're keen to write him off once and for all, to be done with him. And so the questions keep coming. Apparently these are some of the most commonly asked questions about Jesus today. How human was he, really? Why did Jesus come to earth? What did he accomplish on the cross? Where is Jesus today exactly? Why should I, we, worship Jesus? What makes Jesus superior to other saviours? What difference has Jesus made in history? What will Jesus do upon his return? And people carry these questions and other questions regarding the Christian faith. But as we reflect on the example of Jesus in Mark's gospel, let me encourage you to embrace questions. How would you answer these questions? Don't avoid questions like this. Don't shy away from them. Don't refer them on. Because questions, as somebody, a Jewish proverb helpfully says, 
Questions are the beginning of knowledge. Because questions have the potential to take us on a journey of discovery. And I believe Jesus knew that. I know it seems that Jesus knew that. Therefore, he loved questions. Back to the text, because the specific question, question in the incident here relates to fasting. Jesus, how come John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but yours don't? Now, before we consider how Jesus answered, look at how he actually deals with questions. It happens in verse 8, it happens in verse 19, and it happens in verse 25 again. Because what Jesus often did, whenever he was asked a question, he just asks another one back. It's a brilliant tactic. And one of the reasons why it's so good and why it is such a great example for us to adopt is because whenever you ask questions back again, you invite dialogue and discussion. Questions that all come in one direction, smack of interrogation. Questions flowing in both directions provoke participation. And here's my point. Whenever you're questioned about your faith, as we often are, and whenever we're questioned about Jesus, don't always feel you've got to answer questions. Ask them as well. Learn from the example of Jesus and avoid the feeling of being in the hot seat, which is an uncomfortable place to be and a threatening place to be. But back to fasting, because during the discussion, Jesus discloses another description of himself that will add to this growing profile. And it's a description that will be teased out elsewhere in the New Testament. But he refers to himself as the bridegroom. And he makes the point that whenever the bridegroom is around, it's time to feast, not fast. I was speaking at a wedding yesterday. And uh, as we went to the Donadri Hotel, this text was rattling around in my head because it really did strike me how odd it would have been to turn up at a wedding reception where everybody sat around looking at the amazing food provided and not get stuck in. It wouldn't have been much of a celebration. You see, when Jesus is physically around, it's time to feast. Just like at Levi's house. When Jesus, the bridegroom, is physically absent, then it's time to fast. And incidentally, fasting is the subject we're going to be looking at tonight as part of our series on holy habits. One other related comment. Whenever Jesus does physically return to earth one day, the biblical writers describe the event as the beginning of a wedding feast that will never let up. And that's an amazing thought. On to our next incident, nearly there. The setting again is very ordinary. Jesus is out for a walk, a Sabbath walk with his disciples across some fields and they begin to snack as they dander along. Now although it seems that Jesus, and what's really, it seems, what I find interesting just about this moment is that it seems Jesus couldn't even go out for a walk with his friends without the Pharisees in tow. It must be incredibly awkward to feel like you're always being watched and analysed. Where everything you do is scrutinised and dissected. And maybe the cult of celebrity 
or the preoccupation with those in the public eye is not that new. And the issue here is that the Pharisees are convinced that a law has been broken. A law that was expressed in Exodus 34, it's in verse 21, where God said that crops should not be harvested on the Sabbath. But the point is this, no law has been broken. The disciples are simply eating, they're not working. But rather than get into a pointless debate about definitions and finer details, Jesus refers them to a story about David and his friends from 1 Samuel 21, who ate some consecrated bread from the temple because they were starving. Now, strictly speaking, they probably shouldn't have eaten that bread. But that's exactly the point. Whenever you approach life from a strictly speaking perspective, it all becomes about dogma and rules and rituals and regulations and you completely miss the point and the Pharisees were so caught up with the wording of various laws that they missed the intent behind most of them and the Sabbath is a classic example and I think this is a whole issue for us today the Sabbath was intended to make life better for the people It was to be helpful. It was to be beneficial. That was, that still is God's purpose for giving it in the first place. And so Jesus comes out with what must have been a shocking statement for these guys to process. Verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath was intended to be a blessing for people. Stop making it into a burden. What is the Sabbath to you and I? What is Sabbath to you? Well, the next incident also takes place on the Sabbath. It's a different Sabbath. We're into chapter 3 now. Jesus goes to church and there's a man with a shriveled hand in the congregation. And the usual crowd are there ready to pounce. And so it says they watch him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. And a couple of comments about that. One, everyone is now clear that Jesus can heal. They no longer need to think, could he do it? The question now is, would he do it? And secondly, everyone is also now clear that Jesus was a man of compassion. That whenever he saw need... They realized he couldn't ignore it. And Jesus invites the man to stand, which in some ways must have been incredibly embarrassing for him. But Jesus invites the man to stand, but then he turns around to everyone else and he asks a question. And the question is this, it's in verse 4, chapter 3. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And it's a brilliant question. It's another just insightful question on Jesus' part. Because it relates to the law. But it's a no-win question for the Pharisees. Because if they stick to the letter of the law, the strictly speaking perspective, then they would have appeared as hard-hearted, which is exactly what they were. On the other hand, if they decided to reflect the compassion of Jesus and encourage this man's healing, then that would have been construed as breaking the law. And so what do they do? They just remain silent. They say nothing. Complete cop-out. And Jesus finds their behaviour difficult to stomach. In fact, it angers him. Let me add that as a description of our growing profile. 
You see, anger in itself is not wrong. It's why Paul would write to the Ephesian Christians, in your anger, do not sin. It's okay to be angry. In fact, the letter that Roy read out, the pastoral letter, expressed anger. Righteous anger. It's okay to be angry, but that depends on what makes you angry and what you do with your anger. And I know I could go off in all sorts of directions with this, but let me stick with this incident. Because what was it here that made Jesus angry? And it was people's lack of compassion for a fellow human being in need. And what was it that Jesus did with his anger? Well, he met the man's need. And I find that deeply challenging because I kind of wanted Jesus at this moment to sort the people out. To give them what for. And yet Jesus takes his anger at their lack of compassion and instead he does what he can do to meet the needs of the suffering man. And you know, whenever I listen to the likes of Stephen Adams representing Tear Fund here last Sunday, whenever I read their material, whenever I hear a letter like that read to us this morning, whenever I watch a lot of the comic relief footage from Africa about man's inhumanity to man, or the lack of compassion shown to so many people in need, I tend to find myself getting angry, and rightly so. Angry a lot of the time at myself about my own lack of compassion. But the critical issue I realise, and I've got to face up to, is this. What do I do with that anger? Like, what do I actually do with it because it's really easy to point the finger and apportion blame and rant and rave and it's even easier to do nothing but in his anger what Jesus did was he did what he could to meet the needs of the suffering man and so in my anger at injustice and at the situation in our country and at the footage I watched this weekend on our TV screens What have I actually done to meet the needs of those who are suffering? And that leaves me with all sorts of thoughts. I need to finish. That's 14 incidents investigated out of 70. It might take us longer than seven weeks. But I'm still intent on going right through this. And you know, our profile of Jesus grows. Our contact with Jesus increases. And hopefully every contact that we have with Jesus leaves more of a trace of Jesus. But what can we take away from us this morning? Yes, a growing profile. Well, using the example of Jesus, let me give you nine questions to take away. What risks could or might I take this week to introduce my friend or friends to Jesus? What is humanity's greatest need? And how does my answer to that question impact my life? Why is the preached word so important? What steps can I take to avoid isolation from the spiritually sick and dying? What questions do I have about Jesus or the Christian faith? What questions do I have about fasting? How do I perceive the idea of Sabbath? What makes me angry? What am I doing with my anger? If you want those questions, drop me an email and I'll fire them back to you.